Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Denise E. Wilfley, PhD. She is an international authority in the etiology, prevention, and treatment of eating disorders and obesity. She has devoted her career to improving the lives and health of children and their families. Welcome, Denise. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. So how did you get into this world? What brought you to this place? I had the good fortune when I was in graduate school to work with a woman who suffered from binge eating and obesity. And at that time, she had large loss of control episodes of eating. So she'd eat and she couldn't stop, but she didn't engage in vomiting or laxatives or diuretics. And so people were like, well, that's not an eating disorder. That's just overeating. And um, so I thought from my experience with her that absolutely she had an eating disorder. I was at that time working on an eating disorder program right before they changed the diagnostic and statistical manual from three to uh, 3R. And so what happened is that people who had recurrent binge eating could no longer be included as having an eating disorder. So I just happened at that point, you know, 30 right. years ago to be able to work with her. And um, what I learned was that she felt a lot of shame and distress. She, at that point, she was inpatient. And then I was out at a local mall and I saw her in a Cinnabon. Oh. And she was eating a cinnamon roll. And when she looked up and saw me, her face just fell and her eyes, she felt so much shame and embarrassment. And she also struggled with obesity. And that was really hard on her and her whole family, in fact, struggled with obesity. So I just got very curious about the problem and really committed to try to see what I could do to better help people out that struggle with it. Yeah. Well, you know, I so I was, when I was, you know, looking up information about you and what you've done and everything. And I was thinking about the whole obesity thing. And I thought, you know, there's there's so many disorders that people can hide, but you can't hide obesity. And I felt that there must be a lot of shame around that. So is that the the core emotion, would you say, for people that have this eating disorder? I guess it's shame and emotion. I don't even know. I mean, Yeah, for people who have binge eating disorders, so basically for 20 years, I worked to develop research and studies to show that people who had this profile, this recurrent binge eating, that they had distress and harmful dysfunction similar to those with anorexia nervosa and mm -hmm. bulimia nervosa, and then it didn't just go away and that we could effectively treat it. And I was one of the key people to help influence the disorder going into the DSM-5, which is very exciting because now there's a name for the syndrome, there's identified treatments that work, and there's also coverage to pay for treatments for individuals who have binge eating disorder. And most people, when they find out that this pattern of recurrent binge eating, eating large amounts, feeling like they just can't stop themselves is actually an eating disorder and that they're just not diet program failures. Right, right. Because, I mean, dieting is not going to help this. No, no, this is, we try to really clarify for people who have binge eating disorder that they really need treatment for the eating disorder and that by getting treatment for the eating disorder that it will help them stop excess weight gain as well as to be able to more effectively prepare for if they do want to try to lose weight. So some people who have binge eating disorder may have health-related comorbidities. We're losing 
5 to 10% of their body weight could really help with their health profile. Right. But you want to make sure that before doing that, that they're in a good psychological place to be able to, to embark on that kind of venture. Because most people, what happens is when you have a disorder like binge eating disorder, you try not to eat, you're not very effective, right. you have breakthrough binges, and it just creates this vicious cycle. And like you said, it's not only shame, but it's just disgust at oneself. Like, oh. why can't I just stop? Other people just push themselves away, but right. I just keep going back and back and back. So what does a treatment look like? I mean, what, what, I mean I'm, I'm guessing you have to address this on every level. Of the human. For, yeah, for um, binge eating disorder, we found that things that can precipitate a binge is negative mood. So feeling rejected, feeling lonely. And so we work to try to help people develop better ways to manage negative mood. And one of the therapies that I've translated and developed for binge eating disorder is interpersonal psychotherapy. So we do a very careful history of the events that were involved in the onset of the eating disorder, as well as what maintains the eating disorder. So it may have been social rejection or some negative life events, such as a divorce of parents, or it could be transitioning from high school to college that created distress that might have caused the eating disorder. And then we try to work systematically to help them develop a positive social network. And then the other thing we do is we work with them using um, cognitive behavioral therapy for some individuals as well, where we really focus on getting regular eating habits and patterns, getting off this dieting mentality, right. and really trying to not avoid certain foods, but how to integrate all foods into their diet, finding other ways to define self-worth. Women and men are really vulnerable to defining themselves by what they look like in the mirror or what they weigh on the scale. And so we really focus on other all the other ways they value themselves. So I, this is really interesting to me, the whole idea that something might trigger it. Um, and it, it reminds me, I, I, I watched an episode of something called Hoarders one time. And it, it sounded uh -huh. to me like uh -huh. the whole thing with hoarding was like somebody had lost something very significant in their life. You know, it, it could be a death of a loved one or something like that, that triggered them to become a hoarder. Like all of a sudden it was like, I got to have everything. I got to keep it with me and not get rid of it. Um, and, and I, I just never, I mean, I thought it was just something innate within you that just showed, you know, was yeah. part of you as opposed to being a trigger. So the same with this binge eating is there's some sort of a trigger that that's, and it manifests itself in that way. And an eating disorder. Also, there are genetic vulnerabilities and susceptibilities that can make people more likely, but it's an interaction with the environmental situation. So those triggers. And and it, it the between like this population of people that deal with binge eating is there a common I mean are they all into the sweets into the salty or is it all over the place? It's really all over the place in terms of usually it's more the foods that are more what would be traditional kind of thought of as junk foods. Okay. Uh, potato chips, pizza. I'm guessing broccoli, you don't binge eat. Yeah, not very often. Although no. you can have some women and men who end up struggling with an eating disorder, probably more likely anorexia nervosa, where they actually might binge on broccoli or carrots because they're working so hard to manage their weight. Right. And it's not to say that someone with binge eating couldn't 
do that. But in terms of the reward circuitry in the brain and making you feel better, it's really the sugars and the salts and the fats that are more likely to lead to sort of dissipating that negative mood. Right. But the problem is it's sort of a trade-off because you can get rid of the negative mood, but then afterwards you feel so shamed and disgusted and badly about yourself. And then oftentimes for people who struggle with recurrent loss of control episodes, there's weight gain associated with that as well. So here they're trying not to gain weight, but then they're gaining weight because they can't control their eating. So it was because of working with this population, I began to look at what caused the problem to begin with as well. And we know that childhood obesity is actually a risk factor for the development of binge eating disorder. So this was kind of in the mid 80s, I initially started working with a person who had binge eating disorder, and then sort of fast forward five to six years later, I started looking at, well, when did this all start? What's involved in the onset? And we were funded by the National Institutes of Health to look at what caused the problem, and childhood obesity was a very robust risk factor. And so we started really looking into the problem of childhood obesity, and then, of course, in the past 40 years, childhood obesity rates have tripled in the country and globally. So it's a global health problem. It's a national health threat, you know, in terms of the economics. But I initially got to the problem of childhood obesity because of the eating disorders. Got you. And and I totally want to talk about this. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Denise Wilfley. Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and I'm the owner of 100th Monkey Media. 100th Monkey Media specializes in affordable and very effective social media solutions for the small to medium-sized business. Our goal is to create a social media presence that shows off who you are, what you do, and delivers brand loyalty and raving fans. Contact us today to learn what 100th Monkey Media can do for you. 636-789-1776 or visit 100thmm.com. That's 636-789-1776 or 100thmm.com. And we are back. So I want to really touch upon this idea. So you said that childhood obesity is a major factor in in this binge eating disorder. But does this child not become obese because of binge eating? They work together oftentimes. So if you are vulnerable to weight gain anyway and you start to gain weight and then in our culture because what's in is the more lean ideal. So a child who gains weight is often teased and stigmatized and bullied and then as a way to try to start managing their weight that either might go on a what we term a naturalistic attempt to diet, and that mm-hmm. doesn't work, it backfires in binge eating. Or you can have cases where because they're ostracized and they're not spending time with peers, they're alone eating, watching TV, and then that can gradually build up into gaining weight. And then the binge eating, when that gets triggered as a way to handle negative emotions, then that okay. can increase weight as well. And and it's, I mean, it's it must be very difficult for a parent to police this, right? I mean, it's obvious the parent is, these kids are probably resourceful. They know how to find the food or what have you. And what does a parent do? Well, we really 
stress that parents are not the problem, but that they can be part of the solution. Okay. And so with someone, it depends. If a child has loss of control eating plus obesity, then we're going to first tackle the loss of control eating. If the child does not yet have the loss of control eating, then we're going to go after working on the childhood obesity. And what we do with childhood obesity is that we really work to engineer an environment that's going to make it easy for the child to do the right thing in terms of, for the most part, eating in a nutrient-dense way and also getting physical activity. And so that really requires the whole family to be on board because we don't want to stigmatize that child. They're already getting, for the most part, two out of three children who have obesity are bullied and victimized at school. So for the most part, most kids are getting some negative comments or getting excluded. So the last thing you want to do is single them out in the family as if they're the one that has a problem. So we really talk about this is a health problem. And so we want to get the whole family on board and that eating in a healthful way and getting physical activity is great for everybody. And so that's what we do is we enlist everybody usually in treatment. We have one caregiver and the child that we're working on, but the caregiver is really responsible for bringing the whole family on board or more people can come in as right. well. I had a, a just a heartbreaking experience one time. It was right before the school year. And we were out buying whatever we got to buy for, you know, school every year. And I overheard this little boy say to his mom, and there was like a whole display of some kind of diet shakes, you know. And I heard the little boy asking his mom if she would buy them. And she's like, we're not going to buy those. And he's like, mom, I have to lose weight before school. And it just struck me. I just, I, I tear up to this day when I think, because this little boy, mm-hmm. I'm like this tiny little, sweetheart. little, this little yeah. sweet boy is completely concerned about his weight. And it's not that he was incredibly overweight, but he was he was a chunky little guy, mm-hmm. you know, but I thought here is this little boy who's probably eight years old mm-hmm. and and he is out buying school supplies and all he can think of is I got to lose weight before school. I can't even, I just, my heart went out to him. So if we as a society, if we know of a child that is, I mean, what... How do you, what do we do? Where do we tell them to go? What kind of resources can we share with the parent or with them? Well, I think that's one of the main reasons I wanted to do the TEDx talk is that I wanted to make people aware that sadly children don't have access to evidence-based treatments. So that I've been fortunate for the past 30 years to have funding from the National Institutes of Health to run programs and find out what treatments work. But the problem is insurers don't cover these treatments. And so when children's hospitals around the country go in to try to fund these programs, they run in the red. So what do you think hospital programs do? Either they reach out and they get philanthropic funds or they cut the program because they just can't pay for it. They can't afford it. Yeah, exactly. And so sadly, like I get asked all the time, you know, Dr. Wilfley, where can my child go to get this treatment? I know these treatments work and I'm like, we unfortunately we don't have them available. And so oh, that's gosh. why I've been doing much more work at a national and state level to bring attention to this problem. Well, and it's 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 such an issue. I mean, it, it, my guess is it seems like it's a bigger issue in the United States. Am I correct? I mean, you said it was worldwide. Yes. But it seems like the United States tends to have the, it's the biggest, it's one of a bigger problem in the United States than other 
country. Absolutely. And the do United you know why States that is? is leading the pact, but also it's actually global at this point and it's okay. probably the biggest global health threat, you know, that's overtaking things like smoking in terms of the economic toll that it's taking. And the problem is like they're kind of, you know, if you think about how our environment has changed over the past 40 years, well, what are the things that have primarily changed? People are working more hours, so they're grabbing fast food. Yeah. There's much more availability of sugar-sweetened beverages. And we know when you eat sugar-sweetened beverage or drink sugar-sweetened beverages, you don't counter-regulate. So you're just getting those extra calories. We know you get extra calories in fast foods. We know you're having more meals away from home. Again, you get extra calories. There's many, many more TV channels. There's the social media. And kids are basically spending an extra eight hours a day on social media. And so that's- Eight hours a day? Absolutely. And we know the number of hours of viewing screen time, TV goes up, the more likely so does overweight and obesity. And then lastly, also the duration of our sleep has gone down. And we know that when you don't get sleep, you're less likely to feel energetic, want to get physical activity, and you're more likely to make poor food choices. And so those are some of the really big offenders or other things that have uh, changed as well. But I think those are the things, those environmental changes that have taken place have really caused this epidemic to go through the country. And then I think what's most important, though, is for people to realize there's a gene-by-environment interaction. So there are children that are particularly vulnerable. And um, 40 years ago, there wasn't much variability in terms of people's body weights. You very rarely... Um, saw people who struggle with severe obesity. Right. And now in adulthood, there's up to 6% of adults who have severe obesity. Those are people who are usually in the wheelchairs and motorized cars, you know, and up to 35% of adults are struggling with obesity. You've got 16% of kids that are struggling with obesity. And these are dramatic shifts. And so people who have that genetic susceptibility, it can affect their metabolism. It affects their brain in terms of their wanting or the liking food. And what happens is as a society, we have these moral judgments that people are just not controlling their food right, intake. Exactly. And if they would just push themselves back from the table, it would be better. But in reality, we're pretty much affected by our environment. Our environment drives behaviors. So what we do in the treatment context is that we really work with the parent to really think of the vulnerability, the excess weight gain is kind of like an Achilles heel. It's a vulnerability. And so what you have to do for this child is really design their environment so they're less exposed to these toxic outside forces that have caused the obesity epidemic. Got yeah. And I can't even imagine, I mean, you go to the gas station and buy food now. You know, I mean, there's food everywhere, right? It's like every time you turn around, there's you stand in the aisle to get your groceries. You can buy all kinds of healthy groceries, but what's right there sitting next to you? All the candy. Yeah, so we've got all the marketing towards children. And now, you know, if you go even, I was at the airport and uh, I can't remember which airport this was, but every... Uh, wall was just lined with food. I mean, you didn't even have to walk into the store. It was just a wall. There it is, right there. (laughs) And all of it is just, you know, all this processed food, this fast food, you know, and it was very hard to get like a warm, nutritious meal. So that's why we really work with the family because obviously public health uh, efforts to get healthful foods more cheaply is really important, impact the advertising, 
you know, change the built environment so there's more safe places for kids to play. I mean, all those things are incredibly important, and I think we've made some headway. However, within the healthcare space, we don't do anything for these children. So what happens is they just continue to gain weight. And if you meet, you know, the 97th percentile, you'd be considered obese at age eight, and all you would need to lose is four pounds over the year. But let's fast forward to age 18, it gets to 65 pounds. So just like other health conditions, earlier intervention is better. Wow. And I have three kids of my own, and I've been struck by that, you know, my son was screened and he ended up having an eyesight problem. And so fortunately, he was able to get glasses and go to a doctor to get it fixed. But for the person who has a child who has obesity, it isn't so easy. They can go to a provider. The provider can give them some nutritional information, physical activity information, but that's education alone. And it's really not equipping the family with those behavioral skills and the habits that they need to really change, not just in the short term, but over the long term and have sustained efforts. And we know those like low intensity treatments, they don't help kids out. It's really these higher dose treatments that they need, usually about a year long treatment that really help the parent change their habits, the child change their habits, build this household that's going to be supportive, build a supportive peer network, make sure when they're in the community that they're using resources, they're going to be more likely to prompt healthful behaviors and unhealthful behaviors. So it takes time and really customizing the program to the specifics of that individual family. Who's in the family? Where do they live? What resources do they have available? What budget do they have available? Where can they get their food? Where can they get opportunities for physical activity? Who in their social network, can they get to support them in these efforts? So you can imagine it takes a lot of time to do that. Gosh, no kidding. Wow, I'm really glad you're doing a TEDx talk about it. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that this, it's it's obviously a an issue that needs to be brought forward and that people need to take it seriously, especially if it's becoming a problem with you know, are are draining our resources, right? Well, absolutely, because children are now developing diseases that at one time were thought to be adult diseases. Like diabetes. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease, liver disease. Oh my gosh. They have joint pain, back pain. They have orthopedic problems. There's up to 30 different diseases that they can develop. And basically this excess fat affects every system of their body. But that's not even really the full story because of the psychological pain and agony that they go through in our culture that views thin as in. So if a child is gaining weight like this, then they're more likely to be bullied and teased. And that's where you get the mental health problems. They, they rate themselves as having poor quality of life, the same level of a child of cancer. They actually oh get depression. They get eating disorders. It affects their social status down the road. They're less likely to do as well on the work front, getting into colleges. I mean, there's all these social effects. And so it's not that we want to stigmatize a child, but what we want to do is actually try to help provide a way that they can, in this toxic culture, be able to build this healthy lifestyle when they have such a vulnerability to carrying extra weight. Well, thank you for doing that. And we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. This is Mickey Hancock. Now's a good time to get a snack. My mom's going to do another commercial. If you're looking for an agency to help you with creating and publishing engaging content, launching campaigns, 
or reputation management, 100th Monkey Media is the social media agency for you. Make your business successful with its social media and get a real return from your investment. 100th Monkey Media is far more affordable than you may think, and we make it easy and impactful. Learn how 100th Monkey Media can help you on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and more. Contact us at 636-789-1776 or visit 100thmm.com. That's 636-789-1776 or visit 100thmm.com. Okay, and we are back with Dr. Wilfley, and I have, it's question time. I have questions. I have prepared for you. (laughs) And one of my questions is, so... As a parent, what do I need to be looking for? What do parents need to to look for to know this is this child has a, has an issue? I need to address it. Well, what they can do is a great thing is that we have a healthcare system where most children are seen by their pediatricians, and they can ask their pediatrician if they don't in fact do it to plot a growth chart. And hopefully, most pediatricians are doing that where you take the child's height and the weight and you plot it based on their age and their sex and you can look at where they fall in the growth chart. And if the child is at the 95th percentile, then that means that they very likely meet the criteria for obesity because that level of that percentile is related to excess fat. And so when a child meets that criteria, what the United States Preventive Service Task Force wants us to do is actually have the pediatrician identify the problem and then actually get them into an intensive treatment. Now, the problem is there's no coverage for those treatments yet. Oh, <laughs> so, so that's the problem. Well, and I think we should go there because, and, and this was not one of my questions, but now it is, um, about the whole healthcare coverage. I I did not realize that this was not considered something that health that you should get health care for. It's, it just seems like, you know, just like alcoholism for the longest time is like, well, they just, the, that person just can't seem to stay away from the drink. All they got to do is stop. Well, no, we now classify it as a disease. So how do we get this? What, what measures can we take as a society to get this recognized as an actual disease so that help can be given to these kids that so need it? Well, actually, the American Medical Association and the American Heart Association and the Obesity Society have now designated obesity as a disease. And what that has triggered is that there is agreement that it's medically necessary for individuals who have obesity to get treatment. And so there's some movement afoot, like Medicare for individuals who are over 65, there is reimbursement coverage to get treatment for obesity. And there are guidelines within the Affordable Care Act that are supposed to support services that have what is a grade A or B level of evidence for it. So we have the evidence to treat them and it should be reimbursed because it's mandated, but it is not yet being reimbursed. So what I've been doing and what I'd like others to do is to go to payers and really talk with them about the need to cover childhood obesity. Got yeah yeah and it 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 seems that I mean it, it always it always has to start from the grassroots right to get anything done so it's us going to and saying hey you need to cover this and the problem is like that because obesity people feel so personally responsible so if you struggle with obesity 
unfortunately, you probably bought into society's view that it's your fault. So it feels so shameful, like you don't want to bring it up and you feel like you just don't get it. You're a diet program failure. Right. And so it will be important to get the information out there that, no, this is a disease and you deserve treatment because parents who have children with autism have fought to get treatment. And it's really exciting because in the state of Missouri, we have phenomenal autism centers now because of all that hard work that parents did to bring it to the attention of legislators in Missouri and to get coverage. And the nice thing is that there's even been studies now done in the state of Missouri to show that it's not actually increasing costs, that it's a cost-effective intervention. And I think the same can be shown for childhood obesity. We know that nationally we're spending about $14 billion a year on childhood obesity, $200 billion on adult obesity. We know that for childhood obesity, where those costs are coming in is that children are more likely, if they have obesity, to use emergency rooms. And that's for respiratory problems and also orthopedic problems, falls, injuries because of gait balance problems. They also are more likely to need specialty visits for the mental health or liver problems or cardiac problems. And so those are the things that are driving up cost. However, most insurers, because a lot of these children also come from socioeconomically um, deprived backgrounds, that what happens is that their insurance plans change year after year. And so payers are like, well, hey, if the, I'm not going to recover these costs. Exactly. However, I think if every payer got on board and we worked together, then everybody would benefit because people will save. You're going to bend the cost curve by treating this problem early, not only from the child's point of view, are they getting higher quality of life, but also you're going to prevent those downstream comorbidities. And the other nice thing with the treatment, because it's changing the families, you can get more bang for your buck. Because not only are you getting the child to have better weight management and changes in eating and physical activity and mood, which all affect quality of life and health, but also you're getting that in the parent. We know that we can help the parent oftentimes Children who have obesity have parents who have obesity. And so we're getting about 10% weight loss in the parents and all the positive um, health outcomes and psychological outcomes. And we know that 10% weight loss is associated with positive health outcomes and you can get cost recovery there. So why is that though, the socioeconomic factor? Why is that the case? I mean, I, I look at things like, okay, my daughter is in competitive cheerleading. That's a costly thing to do, right? You know, we afford it for her. I think it's very important. It keeps her active and what have you. Is that part of it? And, and is it also maybe having, I mean, let's face it, fruits and vegetables are expensive. I can, I can buy Twizzlers candy for way cheaper than I can buy apples. Absolutely. You know? So it is part of how we have our food structured. So it's less costly to buy the things that are quick and easy and have high calories. And that does lead to excess weight. So what we do with our families is that we really work with their budget. So lentils, beans, frozen vegetables, those are all things that can fit in to a budget. And the problem is when you're grabbing things as they go, not only are you getting poor nutrient quality, but actually it could even add up to more costs. So we found that you can implement the program and keep it cost 
neutral or actually have cost savings, but it really does require really planning out of where am I going to get those healthy foods if they're right. not readily available and how am I going to plan a meal that's going to work? And I'm working two jobs. How the heck am I going to fit in, you know, having these meals prepared? So what are things that are going to be easy to cook and get available, but also are going to be within the right nutrient quality and calories to promote a healthful weight? That's awesome. I so appreciate that you are doing this. This is, I, I love it. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm excited for your TEDx talk. Great. Thank I'm so you. excited. Has it been fun to to go through the process of? It really has. I feel like it's important as scientists that we actually work to have better bang for our buck in terms of getting better public health impact. And I don't think we're very good at talking to the public about our scientific findings. And I think as I mature, I realize that there's no point in doing the work if it doesn't translate to the public. And so I think this is part of my attempt to, to do that. Well, thank you, Dr. Wilfley. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you. And you have been listening to Mishmash. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. We'll talk to you all later. 